in the book of Hebrews. I would encourage you to turn your Bible there to the 11th chapter, although we'll be concentrating our attention on the 12th. We pick up a theme here in Hebrews chapter 12 that uh, is probably of all the New Testament texts that I default to. I've got this memorized head for years. It is, is this one primarily because it speaks to one of my own uh, early life passions. I, I fancied myself to be a distance runner, and my father could never understand why at five o'clock in the morning I was out on the gravel roads, roads north of Cozad running when there was no one there to impress or anything. But I just I wanted, I wanted to be a distance runner. I wanted to succeed at that. I know most of you find it really hard to believe that I'm as old as Mark Wilson, but um, we, there was a, it was called a Centennial Mile in Cozad, and uh, we hosted while Mark and I were still in high school. He was in Omaha. We hadn't met then, but we knew who was going to win it. Uh, uh, Rick Colglazer from Grant or, uh, or Housel, Tom Housel from Lexington, because they, they had been leading the conference uh, for the whole year. And then out of nowhere came a runner from Kansas and stole the gold medal and took it all. So we were talking about that race one day when... Mark was out here at the office, and he said, I was in that race. Were you there as well? Well, obviously, he was so far in front of me, he had no idea that I was there. I keep going to this text. And all these, verse 39 of chapter 11, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect or complete. Therefore, implication since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us, he includes himself in that, also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us, plural, run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding notice this line I've heard this quoted over and over to the point of shedding blood but here he makes it personal to the point of shedding your blood this this idea of running in the stadium and the cheering fans and all was very familiar the Apostle Paul in that day with the Olympics and the Isthmian Games. He uses it in 1 Corinthians 9 when he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a medal they can't take with them. But we are running for the prize that will endure. So I do not run aimlessly. I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. When, when you move from chapter 11 to chapter 12, remember when this was originally written, there, there were no chapter and verse breaks in the narrative. It is somewhat like those of you that have been to Jerusalem and gone through the Holocaust Museum as you as you, after things you can never unsee are weighing on you, you walk out into the bright sunlight and you, you almost can't get oriented again. When you just see the 
portraits of the tragedies of those who were slaughtered meaninglessly. Or if you've been to Rwanda and had the privilege of going to any one of the genocide museums, less than an hour out of the capital is a, is a brick chapel where literally dozens and dozens were murdered, slaughtered in 1994. Their dried blood is still on the brick wall where they, they would take the babies from the arms of the mothers and they would, they would smash them against the brick wall in slaughtering them. There are shoes there and their clothes are stacked on the church benches there as a reminder. You go into the basement and they're the skulls of the dozens and dozens of people from that community that were murdered or lined up as a reminder. You see, that's, that's the bridge between these two. It's not as glorious and glamorous as it began. It started with great successes. But then it shifted to some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in the skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. They were wandering about in deserts and mountains and in the dens and the caves of the earth. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. Who's the great cloud of witnesses? Those who should have given up and refused. Those who should have thrown in the towel and they refused. Notice his instruction for those of us that are beginning to become discouraged. He's writing to young believers who are starting to wonder if this cost of following Jesus was worth it all. His encouragement to them is, number one, listen to those who have run before. We have this great cloud of witnesses. The stadium is filled with those who should have quit. And they Yes, many of them were very successful, but they, they maintained their faith even in the face of adversity and difficulty. He said, take time to listen to them. So if you're struggling or floundering in your Christian faith, his instruction is, take time to go back and read the stories of the greats. Immerse your mind in the understanding of the work of God, the grace of God. In He gave you 16 starter points there. He says in two places, in 1 Corinthians, and he says it again in Romans. He said, these things happen to them and are written for you, for your instruction that you would not lose heart. The first thing he would say is take time to renew your awareness of the greats of the Old Testament. You've got to be reading your Bible if you're going to finish well. And then secondly, he said, you need to let go of everything that weighs you down. Let us also lay aside every weight. When he, when he says that, he's talking about good things that are not the best things. He's talking about things that are perfectly acceptable, and they're not biblically a violation of any kind, but they're extra baggage. 
the thing about track is that I love to track. I, I ran the mile, I ran the two mile, I ran cross country. I had three grandkids that ran cross country. I hated it when the, when the last one graduated because I didn't have an excuse to go to Pioneer's Park and to cheer. And you have this old guy out there just cheering, he's got nobody to cheer for. He looks like a creeper or something, so <laughs> couldn't go anymore. They all show up and they got their, their school you know, uniform, their sweats on. But then the, there's an announcement made that the race is going to begin in about so long. And it's almost embarrassing how many clothing they take off. In their case, they took it all off. Anything that would hinder them because they had trained and worked and planned and qualified and nothing was going to interfere with a successful endeavor. In Moses' case, what were the things that were legitimate that he laid aside? Well, he laid aside the benefits of being the stepson of the Pharaoh. The privileges of living in a palace. The prestige to being in line to become the next king of Egypt. The, the trappings of prosperity. And yet he said having calculated it, that the treasure of suffering for the name of Christ is of more value than all. You've often heard over the years, we've been in Matthew 13 several times, and there we talk about the seed that is sown, and then there are the weeds that grow up and strangle it, choke it out. And we've described it in these three terms, the weeds of worry, anxiety, over things you don't have any control over anyway. Jesus says, so can you stretch your life this far by worrying about it? No, you can't do that. Can you make yourself this much taller by simply worrying about it? No, and yet we get all overwhelmed by things that are beyond our control. The worry or the wealth. Prosperity. It's probably the number one threat to the American Christian is just the, the, the almost embarrassing wealth and comfort that we have. And the third is whoopee, just getting distracted by life and pleasure and fun. Those things are nothing wrong with those, but you maybe have a hobby that's taking too much of your time, or perhaps you got a promotion at work that, that then cut into the time that you had to devote your heart to learning to listen to the voice of spirit and to walk with Jesus, or, or perhaps it's just managing all of the stuff you've accumulated over life. They're good things. It's not saying it's not. It's saying you have to weigh it and say, if I really want to run in order to win, what could I strip away from my life that would free me to focus there? And then he says, or the sin which clings to us. Sin will always disqualify you. It will always trip you up. It's just the last decade, the evangelical embarrassment of the big names, the pace setters, who have, have, have nurtured what they thought were private sins and behaviors that were suddenly exposed and the humiliation that came and the, and the shame on the gospel. That sin. In this case, it's probably not the sin of excessive alcohol consumption or having a relationship with someone that is not your spouse, or, or some of those other known sins. When you grew up in the world I grew up in, if you owned a deck of playing cards, you were on a grease slide straight to hell. You know, I was like, so uh, never, never imagined that they could be Christian uh, contemporary rock 
Christian music, and that would let you still go to heaven. In other words, whatever it, it is, there are, but those aren't the sins. The sins here, I think, is the sin of unbelief. Coming on the context. It's like a, by faith, by faith, by faith, by faith. What's the challenge for us? That we would look at our circumstance. We would look at our trial. We would look at the discipline to, to strengthen our face muscles that God has brought into our lives, and we would conclude that God is not able and He's not faithful. That I would trust my own strategies and my own plans rather than Him. If you're tempted to the sin of unbelief, then wake yourself up and find that He is faithful to His Word. That he gives the power and the ability uh, the, the fourth thing he says is that you need to commit to your race. Run with endurance the race that is set before us. The, the, the beauty of this is that everybody has their own race to run. And it, it, it kind of loses it here. I remember we were uh, in the uh, Southwest Conference uh, cross-country uh, meet in Ogallala, and we got there, and they had decided that they would run the race on the local golf course, but they didn't want us leaving track cleat marks on their greens, and so they designated what we thought was one of their runners to give us a guided tour of the course, because you're required to run according to the course. You can't make up your own as you go, and uh, so we started out at a slow jog, and everybody that was competing, we just looked like this big gang falling along, and then the further we went on that three-mile tour of the course, the faster we went, and uh, so 30 minutes later, the race started, and about 10 minutes into the race, we see the guy that gave us the tour sitting on one of the greens, just smiling at us. His job was to wear us out. The, the, the point is, is that in, in most races, the, the course is laid out, and everybody runs on the same, but in the Christian life, it's all different. You know, after being your shepherd for 29 years, I, I look at some of your races and think, how, how do you do that? How do, you, how do you stay faithful? How, how do you continue to trust in the Lord? I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't run your race, but I, I don't need the grace for your race. That's not my race. But you look sometimes at me and go, how, how do you run your race and not throw in the towel? And it's because it's the race that God has designated for me. And within that race, he gives us grace. But you have to be committed to running your race. Let us run. You've got to start and you have to press through Endurance means when, when your lungs hit that point when they're screaming for some mercy and your legs are just about to check out and your brain's no longer communicating anything at all, at that moment you press through that wall and you do it by looking to Jesus. Fixate on Jesus who is the author, the founder. He laid out the course and he ran the course as an example for us. He is the perfecter, the completer of our faith. And what motivated him when the things got hard, when the rejection of the people increased, when he knew that the Old Testament would be fulfilled, that he would be betrayed by evil men, nailed to the cross, buried in a tomb, rise on the third day, when he was in the garden and on his face before his father saying, is there any other way? Then on my will but yours be done. What got him up and going it was because he looked beyond the cross to the joy. Therefore, he endured the cross. I love this, despising the shame. What does that mean? Most of us, whether we'll admit it or not, are people pleasers. We, 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 we can't stand not to have the approval 
of others. In Jesus' case, he did not look for or try to merit the applause or the approval of people. He was living his life for the applause of one. Therefore, what the people said of him or thought of him didn't matter. He was tuned in to what the Father said. And the end result of that, he pressed all the way through because he knew on the other side of the cross, the grave, and the ascension, there was a seat at the Father's right hand and he would sit there. So he goes on to say, so consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. The word consider, we pointed that out last week. It appears in chapter 11, verse 11, verse 19, and verse 26. It simply means to sit down and contemplate. Think deeply upon. So think deeply upon Jesus. Turn to 1 Peter, just to the right in your Bible. To 1 Peter. Let your eyes find chapter 2 and verse 19. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God... One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? You had it coming. But if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was there deceit found in his mouth. Yet when he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He simply continued trusting himself to he who judges rightly. Verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you do not grow weary or faint-hearted. When you think that the price is too high, the pain is too intense, I'm about ready to quit. It's a call to go back and read the Gospels again. Consider Jesus. How do I do that? There's four different accounts of His life. What it was like for Him to do the Father's will and live here. Immerse your mind and your heart in the Gospels. Oh, by the way, in your struggle against sin, you have not resisted to the point of shedding your blood. He shed His blood blood for you. They call it the race of the century. It was 1954. There was an Englishman by the name of Roger Bannister, and there was an Australian by the name of John Landry, and at this point they were the only two men in the world that were known to have broken that unbreakable four-minute barrier on the mile. And there they were in Vancouver, running in the same race. I mean, the, the eyes of the sporting world were all on them. They had two different styles. Uh, John Landry was a guy that he liked to get out. He had a long, smooth stride, and he liked to get out and just build some distance between him and the opponent. And he didn't have much of a kick at the end. His legs weren't built that way. So he would always try to get as far ahead as he could so that when they hit their kick, that he would be far enough that he would still win. John Bannister, on the other hand, had a different strategy. He was more muscular and he was more strategic in his thinking. His, his strategy was simply, and the reason I liked distance running instead of sprints, anybody can run for 100, you know, it's over, you don't even have to think, but 
on a distance run, you're going to have to think how you're going to do this. So he decided that what he would do is he would just keep them within dial-in distance. And he would just hang back, run relaxed, and then when he made that last turn on the bell lap, he would overtake them with his incredible kick at the end. Now the problem was is that John Landry got too far ahead. And at the end of two laps, he was significantly yards ahead of the pack, and Bannister was running number two. So he decided he had to change his strategy and pick up the pace a little bit. And so by the time they got to the bell lap, he had pulled within about 15 yards. But that, on the way that Landry ran, that was still too far. But you can only imagine as they came around the last turn. And he's slowly been closing the gap, but the stands were just going absolutely nuts. You couldn't hear yourself think. And suddenly, Landry, who's in the lead, can no longer hear the shoes slapping on the cinders of Bannister, who is gaining on him, and right before he gets to the finish line, he commits the cardinal sin of running. He glanced left over his shoulder to see where his opponent was, and he never saw Bannister pass him to the finish line. He came in second by .08 seconds. See, the problem with running is when you get your eyes on the things around you, other people or other problems or your circumstances. If you take your eyes off of Jesus, the point is when you're running, you fix your eyes on the finish. He said, fix your eyes on Jesus. Notice verse 5. Then, have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? As Brad just read, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. I want you to notice in these next few verses, the word discipline is going to appear nine times. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one that He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. You're not sons. Besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined for us for a short time as seemed best to them. They didn't do it right. They didn't do it well all the time. Sometimes they were too heavy-handed. Sometimes they were not responsive enough. But He's the perfect Father. He disciplines us for our good that we may share in His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Whenever this text comes up, we mostly default, I think, to the, to the second application rather than the first. We raise the question and say, we know somebody that professes to love Jesus and follow Him, and, but they're living in, in, a, in a rebellious or a wayward life, and we look and say, well, obviously they're not the child of God. I don't see any discipline in their life. I think that's the second application. The primary use of the word discipline here is just that grueling training that is necessary in order to succeed. It is the 
strengthening, the building up of faith muscles that go through. That's what chapter 11 is all about. By faith, by faith, by faith. They press through. They developed. Or it says of, of uh, Abraham that Romans chapter 4 that over the 25 years while he waited for the fulfillment of the promise that he, he did not weaken in his faith but he grew strong believing in. That's what he's talking about. It's the discipline. But he says be careful that you don't disdain it. Don't regard it Lightly, what God has brought into your life, the hard time you're in right now, is His intended purpose to help you become stronger in your trust in Him. Don't be weary when you are reproved. There is the constructive side, and then there is the corrective side. He talks here in two terms about, one, don't be weary when reproved. Reproof is God's Word verbally correcting us. He, he, he speaks a word of warning to us. And then if we don't listen to it, then we have the second one in verse 6. He says, and he chastises every son that he receives. Now the problem that most people have when they read the book of Proverbs is they immediately think about parenting. Like my dad used to say, my children are like a canoe. They work best when paddled. But that's not, that's not a right take. It says, well, spare the rod, spoil the child. But if you read Proverbs rightly, there are so many preparatory steps that a loving father takes before he finally goes, ah. So the reproof is the verbal, please don't go there. You're not going to like the end of this. The chastising is what he must do in order to help us remember the verbal reproof. Sometimes he must inflict discomfort. But it doesn't start there. I love this. Tom Landry, it used to be called America's team, but the Dallas Cowboys have since gone, I don't know where, but anyway. He said that the job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to be what they always wanted to be. That's what the discipline in the text is, nine times. It is God taking us through the training process, the stretching and developing process with things, circumstances, situations that, that we do not crave and do not want, but He's doing it so that we can become what we genuinely want to be. It's affirmative. He says, what son is there that the father doesn't? What, in, their, in their culture, what would happen was a father was blessed with a son, and his whole goal from the time that he was an infant onward is to help the little guy become a young man. And to prepare him for whatever was necessary for him to be a productive man, citizen, in the culture. My son was cursed to be the firstborn in my family. I, I wasn't old enough to be his father, but I, I would have this. And, and Linda would say, do you think you're being a little hard on him? And I'd say, well, I don't think so, but you know, I, I would say in retrospect, yeah, I, I, at times. Once she said, she would say, "Well, wh why are you doing that?" And I said, "Because I know what it's going to take for him to provide for his family, to succeed in the business world, and and to to love his kids." I said, "I saw. I, it's my job to get him ready to do that." And that was my justification for putting him on a hand-me-down riding mower that went two mile an hour with a trailer behind it and a push mower to go all the way across Gothenburg to mow a lawn for 30 minutes and get paid $2 and then drive back again. It's like, it's part of the training. That's what he's saying. What father is there that doesn't? So if you're not experiencing, if you've just got a silky smooth path in life, 
And you're not following hard after Jesus. You're not, you're not enjoying the richness of that fellowship, but everything is going really well. He says you need to raise the question. Is your child relationship illegitimate? Are you claiming a father that doesn't claim you? If there aren't some rough times in your life, that's evidence that you're not his. Fourth, it says it's productive. It's sanctifying. He does this, he says in verse 10, he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. That is, that that we might be molded and shaped into his image. He goes on to say, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, the shalom, the blessing, the fullness. What is the peaceful fruit of righteousness? It is that, it's that calm assurance that you have, though this difficulty in my life is not God disciplining me, but it is God strengthening me. And that I have, as he says back in the other chapter, I have his commendation. Peaceful fruit of righteousness is that awareness that in spite of the difficulty that I find myself in, that I have submitted myself to the leading and the work of the Spirit of God. And as a result of that, he has stamped my faith as genuine. He commends me for that. You see, the principle is that you win or lose before you begin the race. It's the preparation, it's the training that takes place that precedes long before the run. One of my favorite movies is that uh, The Miracle on Ice from February 22, 1980, when the underdog United States hockey team upset the four-time Olympic champions who had not lost a game in the Olympics since 1968. And he took a bunch of, Herb Brooks took a bunch of college kids and trained them to represent our nation. They hated him. He he, he almost broke them. His assistant coaches hated him. But he said, you don't have enough talent to win on talent alone. We're not the most talented team, but we will be the best conditioned. Success is won by those who believe in winning and then prepare for that moment. Many want to win, but how many prepare? That's the difference. What is courage? Let me tell you what I think it is. It's an indefinable quality that makes a man put out that extra something when it seems there is nothing left to give. I dare you to be better than you are. Or in the Apostle Paul's terms, Philippians 3, Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it on my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The nation celebrated, held their breath and celebrated when Herb Brooks' boys won the gold simply because they refused to quit skating. The principle is this. It's the choices that we make in life that will write the story of our life. And according to the context of Hebrews chapter 12 in the discipline of the Lord, the choice is between this, belief or unbelief, faith or distrust. In the midst of the race that he has laid out for us to run, 
Will we continue to rest in Him and trust in Him? Or will we turn and walk away? You have a choice to make. But whatever choice you make, it will be the story of your life. The hard part about writing that sentence was the number of once considered brothers in Jesus who have turned and walked away. That's probably the painful part of pastoring for 50 years. You can fill pages with stories of God's grace and success. But regrettably, there's an appendix or two of those who once professed to be His did no longer seek Him or walk with Him. Six-time Chicago Bowl NBA champion said, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I've lost almost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot, and I missed. I have failed over and over and over again in my life. I'm not out there sweating for three hours a day just to find out what it feels like to sweat. That's why I succeed. Michael Jordan was once cut by his high school basketball coach. He went home whining to his mother, and she said, you're just going to have to practice harder. And he spent that summer six hours a day fine-tuning his game. It was the Olympics in Mexico. I love this story, true story. The marathon started at 3 o'clock on a super hot afternoon. 74 Olympic marathoners started the race. 17 of them didn't finish. Late at 7 o'clock that evening, there were still a few hundred fans in the stands. A silhouette shadow came limping into the stadium a full hour after the gold medalist had crossed the line. His name was John Stephen Akawi from Tanzania. It was 1968. He had fallen and injured himself and literally dislocated his knee. And yet he drug himself to the finish line. A reporter met him there and said, when you were so far behind, what kept you running? His answer was simply, my country did not send me to Mexico City to start the race. They sent me here to finish. We're all sobered by the mass departure of a young generation from the faith and from the church. We've absorbed the statistics and it grieves us. But you know the number one generation that's walking away from the church are not the young, it's the boomers. Those 55 and older are defecting from the faith at a much higher rate. They're either worn out, exhausted, or disappointed. They've given it all and they just think there must be something more. I've got this much time left and I'll walk away. 29 years ago when Faith Bible Church was birthed, most of us were middle-aged or younger. 
we're not middle-aged anymore. If we don't finish strong, the damage and injury to the generation to follow is irreparable. Seven days before my dad went home to be with Jesus at age 84, he was in his wheelchair and I was on the other side of the table. After starting preaching at age 19, here he is, 84. Two months before he died, he had preached three times that month. And my dad said, Tom, if I would have known what the spiritual warfare is like at the end of life, I would have been a far different pastor at deathbed side than I was. He said, it is a moment-by-moment battle to hang on to my faith. I said, Dad, why is, why, is that, why is that such a battle? And he said, because of the implications to my children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, if I lose my faith in the end. Suddenly, I had to become the father. I said, Dad, you always told us that we don't hold on to Jesus. We endure because Jesus holds on to us. Those of us that are closer to the finish line than others owe a horrible debt to the generation to follow because they will learn far more by what is caught than what is taught. Abel refused to quit, even when Cain became murderously jealous. Enoch refused to turn aside, even when he was the only one who walked with God. Noah refused to stop building, even though every neighbor around him mocked him. Abraham refused to go back to the homeland, even though he never owned anything in the land of promise but a burial spot for his bride. Joseph refused to retaliate, even though presented with a golden opportunity at the end. And Moses refused to quit, even though all of the leaders of his nation and his own brother and sister turned against him. All of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what is promised, since God had provided something better for us. To run in the Olympics or the Yesmian Games. They didn't have professional paid coaches and they didn't have professional paid athletes. You had to earn your place in the competition. You had to do your own training on your own schedule and in your own way. It was usually an intense, painful, 11-month process. And then on the day of the race, only those who had actually qualified were allowed to run. And for over 25 miles, you would run in isolation and loneliness, hitting one wall after the other that screamed out to quit. But then finally, you would round the street and enter into the stadium. And as the leader of the race came into the stadium, the place was packed and the stands were filled with screaming supporters. Suddenly there was a new energy to finish strong. 
But as the winner would collapse across the line, it wasn't over yet. He would turn and he would face the stands, and way up in the top was the throne of the ruling emperor. The winner would be ushered up, and as he went up, it was like the Red Sea parting as the crowd would, still screaming and hollering and cheering for the winner. And he would come to the foot of the throne of the emperor where he would bow before him, and the emperor would take a woven laurel wreath a fresh cuts and place it on his head. And somewhere under the din of the screaming, cheering crowd, the winner would hear this word, well done. Well done. Paul, keeping that in mind, said, the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all those who have loved his appearing. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. The truth is simply this. We will win or we will lose long before we start the race. It has to do with our submission to the pain of the discipline. It is for discipline that you must endure. Lord, I want to pray specifically for my generation. For those of us that have walked with you, have experienced your grace in our lives who have been tested and trained through hard times and good, but who have come to that precarious moment in our history where it would be so easy to slack off, to become distracted, just to play the card that we've earned a break. And the consequences to the generations that follow are indescribable. So specifically for my brothers and sisters in the boomer generation, I'm asking that you would encourage us again, that the silent cheering of that great cloud of witnesses screaming, don't give in and don't give up, would be sufficient to spur us forward to a faithful finish. Not because we are able, but because you are faithful. That you would do that for the greater fame of the glory of your name, I pray.